Yeah, I'm walking out of the grocery store so you might get the full experience. Did an episode a few days ago last week driving home from the grocery store, so you're gonna get the walking home from the grocery store experience. You know how prostitutes give you the girlfriend experience? I've never been to one, but I, I know this much. They have what's called the girlfriend experience, where they'll cuddle with you, I guess. It's a little extra pathetic, but you know, I'm not one to judge. But, uh, you know, of course I'm not done with Ted Kaczynski. Once you got Ted Kaczynski on the brain, there's more to say. Because I was reading some of his letters some of which I'd seen before. I know, I, I know I've gone through some of his letters that have been made available. But there were a couple points that stood out to me. Just gonna change hands here. A couple of things stood out to me, and I guess I'll start with the least offensive idea. Because <laughs> there's probably gonna be less to say about it, but you know, he talked about littering. And I know this from reading about him over the years, that in one of his journals he talked about getting a certain pleasure out of littering in the forest. And, and people use that to be like, oh, see, he was a hypocrite. He was a hypocrite. Which he might be. But it also shows you that no matter what your principles are, you have some need to rebel against them. And for him, obviously, the ultimate rebellion is to put a little stain on nature through littering. But, you know, there might be more to it, because I was reading this, this letter he wrote that I hadn't seen before where he talks about littering. And in this letter he says, he's talking about, like, why people litter. And he, and he mentions the way that animals have a need to leave excrement around even the area they live in, because it marks their spot. Which we all know. It's the reason why dogs piss on everything. But just excrement in general. Animals will leave it in their own area to mark their territory. Because the idea is if you excrete here, if you leave your waste here, it's yours. And he thinks human littering comes from a similar bat place. He thinks that there's something in human beings that wants to litter as a way of sort of marking your territory. He might be onto something there. You know, he might well have a point. Maybe not, he may not have gotten to the bottom of it, but he might well have a point. Because you think about who, at least where I live, the, the area I live in, my neighborhood, I would say 99% of the litter comes from homeless people. And you'll often see where when they, when they clear a camp, the amount of litter that's left behind, even when there's trash receptacles nearby, and that's what Ted Kaczynski pointed out, where people will litter even when trash receptacles are made available. And I've talked about littering on here because I see it as an act done by somebody who already sees the earth as an ugly place. And if somebody already sees the earth as an ugly place, it means very little to them when they leave trash behind. 
or just throw it out into the bushes, into nature. And I, when I talked about that before, I mentioned how it's very rare that you actually see somebody do it. Like sometimes you'll be behind somebody in your car, somebody will be driving up ahead of you, and you see them just throw an empty drink out their window, you'll see things like that. But every once in a while you'll actually see somebody's face while they do it. And it's almost like seeing somebody's face as they go to the bathroom. It's like you're seeing something that you're not meant to see. You're seeing something private. And I was leaving a strip mall a few years ago, and there was a guy getting into his car, and he threw something. I don't remember what it was. It was like a piece of paper or some kind of trash. And I saw his face while he did it, and his face was so angry. He was filled with so much hate, like, you know, and I'm not projecting. Like, he he didn't just have resting dick face. There was a, a certain level of anger in his expression. And then he, he glanced at me, because he didn't, when he, when he was littering, he didn't see me. And then right after he threw it, he saw me. And that look of anger was still on his face. Like, not like he was angry at me, but like the way his face changed. Like, he still had this contempt on his face, but when he made eye contact with me, it really, it was like he, he still felt, you know, I, I'm, I'm really reading into this, but still, it was like he still felt justified throwing that trash. But like when he saw that I saw him, it was a very, I wouldn't even be able to put a word on it. I wouldn't be able to describe it with a single emotion, but it was like he got caught going to the bathroom. I mean, let's stick with that. It was almost as if he was pissing and didn't know that anybody was seeing him piss somewhere where he wasn't supposed to piss. And then he suddenly made eye contact with me. You know, it was just, it was very strange. And every once in a while I'll see somebody and it's not uncommon when you see somebody's face while they're littering for them to have kind of a look of contempt. And when talking about like homeless people littering so much, you know, you could say it's mental illness, you could say their situation lends itself to that. Like, they, if they're living a miserable life, they might not care or even think about it when they do that. But I kind of, my approach to that was just someone who's living that way, someone who's living under the conditions of homelessness, might very well see the earth as a fundamentally ugly place already. Therefore, it's nothing to them to try to preserve what little beauty there is, what little natural beauty. So to them, that was my philosophy, my, not philosophy, that was my interpretation, is that they might already see the world, the world as so fundamentally ugly that it means nothing to leave trash behind. But Ted Kaczynski's take is interesting, the idea that people are doing it to mark their territory, because that kind of fits the homeless idea as well, where a lot of the trash they leave behind is where they live, at their camp, in the neighborhood where they live. And his solution, and he, he was very tongue-in-cheek, because you know his writing, especially his letters, have a sense of humor to them. And it, in, in his writing about littering, he suggests that instead of trash receptacles, because he says, he says the reason why many people don't want to use trash receptacles is because it hides their trash. They want people to see their trash because that's how they mark their territory. So his suggestion is that instead of trash receptacles, 
having sort of a spike. I like this idea. <laughs> he said, instead they should have a spike. And people just, they put their, their litter on the spike so it's on full display. And then when there's enough litter accumulated on the spike, they remove it. But that might inform why he himself talked about finding joy in littering. Because, I mean, he, he lived, you know, in a very pristine area. Very natural, um, you know, un, uh, undeveloped nature. And so he may have found some sort of pleasure in marking his territory with his human litter. Which, which is funny because my visual of that, because, you know, you think about when you see litter, it's almost always junk food. I don't think that's a coincidence. I don't think it's a coincidence that it's fast food, it's empty ice cream containers, which always gets me. You see, a, you know, not an overwhelming amount of ice cream containers, but enough to where you go, huh, that means someone was either eating a tub of ice cream in their car or walking along with ice cream, like not just like a single, not just one of those tiny little, like single serving ice cream containers. I'm talking like, a, like a, a fairly large thing of ice cream. You see a surprising number of those considering how inconvenient that is to eat on the go and how much of it there is. But it's often junk food. It's, it's chip bags. It's the things people eat who don't care about their body. And I don't think it's a surprise then that they don't care about nature. They don't care about cleanliness in their environment. So I don't know if I completely buy his idea that people do it to mark their territory, but it's worth considering, and there might be something to that. But, you, but when I first heard about Ted Kaczynski's journal where he talked about taking a certain sick pleasure in littering, I was imagining him leaving McDonald's bags around. I was imagining like the junk food containers that you see around, but it's like, what was his litter anyway? You know, he bought like bags of oats. He bought like bags of grain. You know, he was buying relatively little from stores and he certainly wasn't going through the drive-through at McDonald's. So it's funny to think about what litter even meant to him. Like what sort of products he was, what sort of uh, product packaging he even would have had on him to leave behind in different places. But uh, that's about all I have to say about that. Just worth considering that it is a form of marking territory, littering. But another thing he says in one of the letters, because he wrote a very informative letter sort of debunking the myths of primitive societies, because he was addressing the sort of leftist myth that primitive societies had it all figured out. And even though he valued that way of living more than any other and emulated it in his own way, he didn't buy into the myth that, like, because you'll hear this from leftists where it's like the idea that these, you know, primitive tribes weren't sexist, they weren't, they didn't mistreat their wives, they didn't do this, they didn't do that. They kind of lived in this ideal little society. And he's done extensive research into that. He's, he's read, you know, it's clear from, from his writing about it that he's read many anthropological studies of these tribes. He's dug into the history a lot. 
I mean, it's what he spent a lot of his time doing, both before he went to prison and after. And he, he talks, though, about a tribe on a Malaysian island. And he talked about warfare between those tribes. And he, was, he pointed out how peace was often brokered between the women, the women of this tribe, of these tri- these warring tribes in Malaysia, the women would be the ones to actually broker the peace. But this was because it was, it turned out the studies showed these women were the ones actually egging it on. The women brokered the peace, but they also were the ones instigating war. And even though the wars were fought between men, the men fought extensively because the women at home were telling them to. They were influencing them to do it. And I thought that was so interesting because the day before, I was thinking about summer 2020, and I I know I talked about it on an, an episode around that time, but I noticed that most of the people I know, I, I don't know if I was trying to say no or knew, but I, but I noticed that most of the people that I know, as well as people that I observed online who were making the most explicit calls for violence, both during summer 2020, as well as after the election and all that, just that period of very intensified conflict. But I noticed that a lot of the people making explicit calls for violence were women. This was something I observed a year and a half ago, over a year ago. And I don't think I'd ever seen that before. But it stood out to me because I was seeing it over and over again. Both from women I know personally, who were very politically activated, as well as from just random women online. I was seeing a lot more explicit calls for violence from women, like they were cheerleading. They were making threatening remarks that you knew they weren't going to back up, but it's like they were fanning the flames. They were egging people on. And it was more than just a one-off. I saw it over and over again. And I know that I commented about it on this show, where I was like, it's really strange. I'm noticing that the people who are making the most explicit calls for violence are women, which goes against our idea of, you know, feminine nature, whether you believe that's conditioned or whether you believe it's innate, it kind of goes against our idea. But you think about like the stereotype of a woman who enjoys two men fighting over her. And that doesn't come out of nowhere. And so Ted Kaczynski talking about this study of a Malaysian of Malaysian tribes who were at war and how women were responsible for brokering the peace, but only because they were the ones that instigated the warfare and egged their men on to fight. And I, I obviously drew an immediate parallel to my observation last year. And I think there's something to that. And you also think about, you know, you the the influence of women in, in ter- you know I, I read a book about Scandinavian history a year or two ago and it talked about how the Christianization of Scandinavia was largely carried out through the women and specifically with regard to Vikings because you 
you know, you, you kind of wonder, like, how did the Vikings, these pagan warriors, you know, who are known for their viciousness, how and why did they just convert to Christianity just like that? And this book, which was, you know, very objective and well-informed, uh, I believe it was called The Soul of the North, but it talked about how this phenomenon happened because as Vikings returned from overseas travels, they returned home to find that their wives had been converted to Christianity. And so they, they returned to Scandinavia to Christian homes. Christian homes, which is my name. My name is Christian Holmes. No, they returned to essentially Christian households. And the women were adamant that they convert too. And that's what ended up happening. And that's not the only explanation for the Christianization of Scandinavia. But this book noted that Vikings in particular converted heavily through that process. And it blew my mind. And you can kind of see that play out, you know, through politics today. Because, you know, I've mentioned this before too. But a lot of the men I know are more, if they're not politically moderate or politically independent or right-wing, you know, they're apolitical and they're not taken by the spell of, uh, you know, social justice and, and leftism in the same way that many of the women I know are. They're certainly not as passionate about it, even if it's something they care about. But I know specifically a lot of men who are either apolitical, politically moderate, or on the right. And at the very least, they kind of keep it a secret from their wives or girlfriends. Because their wives and girlfriends are, if not sympathetic to the left, they're full-on leftists at this point. And I was even thinking about a friend of mine who he pays all the bills. He's the breadwinner. His wife largely depends on him, but he kept who he voted for a secret from her. So even that speaks volumes, the fact that he has such power in the relationship in terms of being the more dominant one, the one who basically, basically keeps the roof over their heads. But the fact that he was not comfortable sharing with his wife who he voted for because she would disagree and it would cause a problem. And my friend is not a weak-willed person. I'm not going to get into specifics here who he is, but he's not a weak-willed person. He's very stoic. He stands his ground about what he believes in and who he is. But the fact that he didn't feel comfortable sharing that with his wife. Meanwhile, he has a lot of the power, you know, and you think about Vikings and Christianization, and it, it brings that to mind. And I was talking to another friend who... I kind of reconnected with a childhood friend over the last few years who is fairly apolitical and definitely not taken by all of the leftist talking points going on, but his girlfriend is. And how he was pressured to attend a protest, which he did, because his girlfriend wanted him to. He was pressured to attend a BLM protest. And then more recently, he's just gone fully into like demanding that people get the vaccine. He's, he's basically doing whatever she wants him to do. And it's caused my friend like some issues talking to him.
Because my friend, for example, is unvaccinated and it's caused him a bunch of grief with just about everybody he knows. And this friend of his who like up until recently was pretty cool about everything. He was pretty well balanced. And even if he didn't agree with my friend, you know, we've talked about this quite a bit, which is why I know about it. But even if he didn't agree with my friend about everything, he found the humor in things and he understood the other perspective. But he was saying more recently, this friend has gotten increasingly dogmatic and argumentative about these things where he's just basically fully converted now. And again, I'm reminded of like Scandinavia being Christianized in large part through the women. And I believe that pattern has probably played out. You know, we're seeing it play out with politics. Because I think about the number of friends I have who are sympathetic to some of this radical leftism, largely because they don't want to lose their girlfriend. They don't want to upset their wife. They want to meet a girlfriend or a wife. And it's not, not that all women believe in that. But it's, it's kind of where my joke comes from about how in, what, 10 years, I'm going to have a Buddhist Republican girlfriend who's going to be way more dogmatic and conservative than me. That's been my joke now for a while on this show, if you listen to it. My joke is that I'm going to have a Buddhist Republican girlfriend who's like way more hardcore and thinks I'm weak, who thinks I'm not conservative enough. And I hate to dissect my jokes on here, but that's where that's coming from. Because you see it on the right as well. Where if you know any, you know, right-wing women, they do the same thing. You may not be exposed to it as much depending on where you live. But you see a similar tendency in that they're the ones putting their men putting their men's feet to the fire. Maybe a little less so because you know, American conservatism does kind of, not kind of, but I mean, it's supposed to operate under the, under the, under this system of, you know, men ruling the household and making the decisions and all that. So I think you do see it less so there for a number of reasons. I think you see, I think you see a little less of it on the right for that reason, because they do operate under the guise of traditionalism, where the, the, the woman listens to her husband and this and that. But, you know, as I've said before, it's like traditional conservatism is always losing ground. And you can, if you just look at the Republican Party, you know, it, it's far more female influenced than it's ever been. And women have a lot more independence in American conservatism than than ever before. So even if the traditional model is that the conservative woman should listen to her husband and do what he says, we can see where it's become modernized and it reflects just all of the changes that have gone on in our country. And you can observe it too. Because when I talked about 2020, you know, this sort of provocative language coming from women 
fanning the flames. I noticed it on the right, too. I noticed it way more on the left, but I did notice it on the right as well, because I, I don't think that it's strictly political. I think there's something about men and women where the women do tend to egg it on. Because you think about a guy who his girlfriend or wife is saying, why aren't you doing something about this? Why aren't you doing something about it? That's going to have a big impact on him. Especially if he thinks that it might cause her to leave him or just cause ongoing tension in his relationship. Because I think that's why a lot of the guys are giving in to their wife or girlfriend's politics or at the least censoring themselves. So just a little offhand comment in Ted Kaczynski's letter, which wasn't really about that. It was just a little aside. Because he was talking about how those primitive tribes were involved in constant conflict and warfare. And so he was just talking about that, how they were not peaceful. Primitive tribes, he was saying, like hunter-gatherer societies were not peaceful. And he was trying to debunk that mythology and he just made a little aside that I, I just immediately resonated with me about women tending to egg the men on. And even though women ended up being the peacemakers, it was because their role was as instigator as well. So the instigators were also the peacemakers, at least in this Malaysian on this Malaysian island that Ted Kaczynski read about. I find that very interesting. And instead of rejecting that kind of information, you know, I'd have to read it myself. If I really wanted to delve into it, I'd have to actually read that study myself, compare it to other information that's available. But it's something that if you pay attention, you can observe now. You know, if you, if you want to trace the roots of conflict, if you want to trace the roots of changes, cultural changes, it's not just men making all the decisions. Men are often responding to something. And what do men respond to? Perhaps more than anything. Well, we know what that is. Okay.